Let's do this. Hi, everybody. How are you? It is, uh, let's see, it's the 12th of November, 2023. I've got shit on my shirt. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas. This is episode, I think, 179 of my live chat. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for being here this uh, Sunday. Normally, we do this on a Thursday. So let me start things off with um, just a very quick sort of note here. We're supposed to do one of these, obviously, on Thursdays. We typically do these at Thursdays uh, at 3 p.m. I did put a note up on Twitter that I wasn't going to be able to do it. Thursday was a very strange day. Um but uh, I did not put an update on the YouTube spaces, like the community notes and other places. So let me just first off apologize for that. I am really sorry. Um, should have been much more communicative than I was. That will not happen again in the event that I'm unable to do this. Um, but I at least got one in for the week. We will resume on a normal schedule on Thursday at 3 p.m. So I'm um, sorry for everyone who had made plans to tune in and, and wasn't able to. I'm, I'm really, really sorry about that. Um, there was a second piece of housekeeping news. Oh, yes, the second piece of housekeeping news. Yeah, now I'm going to try to sell you on joining the uh, the, the site. Uh, obviously, I still want you to do that, but let's, let's do this. UFC 295 was in the books. I put up a thread yesterday. You guys filled it up. Let's take a look at what is on your mind about the fight, and then we'll get to it. Oh, yes, here's the other note, too. I'm wearing, in particular, a morning combat shirt. Tune in tomorrow, morning combat live, 11 a.m., youtube.com. Slash morning combat. We're going to go through the fights piece by piece, detail by detail, with some added footage and a whole lot of extra fun stuff. So that should be a good time tomorrow. But today we're going to get to your individual questions. All right. With that preamble out of the way, let's do what we always do and get this party started, shall we? And we're back. All right. <clears throat> Once again, thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, all right, let me get this going here. We'll refresh the screen, and then we'll pull it up and see what you guys had to say. Boy, I got to say, I said this last night on the uh, post-fight show I did for MK. Um, that was a great show. <laughs> that was a great show. All finishes. Um, I think it was like 11.15 or something like that, 11.16. And I looked at the clock, and all the fights that were left were just main and co-main. And then... Both of those were a combined less than three rounds. I mean, it moved. It moved. It was a great show. Um, I really, I had a good time watching it. I thought the prelims card, prelim, the preliminary card, excuse me. I don't know if over deliver is the right word, but certainly held up its end of the bargain. Overall, great, great show. Really great show. Um, okay, so we refreshed this. Let's get this on the screen and see what you guys think. Whoops, nope, don't want to do that one. Hang on one second. First of all. Let's do that. Then let's add this. There we are. All right. Very good. Oops. So let's do this here. Okay, first question. Lucas, Tom Aspinall had the greatest ever rise in the UFC heavyweight division. Seems like it to me. While Brock was there in three fights, I think it's hard to argue that none have been as decisive and undeniable as Tom currently is. Love you, dude. Thanks for all the content. Ooh, that's a great question. Well, definitely it's been good. It's been very, very good. Tom Aspinall's rise. So let me think about that for a second. Who have had impressive rises? You mentioned Brock. Brock's rise came with a level of celebrity from the word go that certainly Tom's has not had. That's not the same question you're asking, but to be clear, everything Brock did was heavily viewed and dissected and blah, blah, blah. So that would be different in that sense. But you know what? Came. Kane's rise was like this. Let me pull up um, his resume here real quick if we can. 
he's kind of forgotten in this whole thing. I mean, he's in the news because obviously this terrible incident uh, with law enforcement that he's involved in. Uh, here's his, yeah, here's his rise. So again, it got derailed, but just to be clear, let's put this up one more time if we can. This was his rise. Let me blow it up so you guys can see it here. All right. So this was his rise and eventual fall. But you're talking about he made it to the UFC in his third fight, TKOing Brad Morris in a round. Jake O'Brien, who was still something of a prospect by that point, he got waxed. Dennis Stoinich was not a big name, but he got waxed. Uh, Czech Congo was a big-ish name at that time. That one was thing was a little bit disappointing. He had to wrestle more than – so maybe not his name. The Ben Rothwell win-win was huge. He absolutely bludgeoned him. Noguera was a monster win with that combo. You guys are probably seeing he was bouncing his head around. And then he beat Lesnar at 121. So I, I would say that you know the Congo fight was a bit of a hiccup um, that in a way that Aspinall doesn't have. But also, Aspinall also had losses on the regional scene before he got to the UFC. So it's plus or minus. You could also, how about Big Francis's run? I mean, Big Francis's run, okay, he got obviously messed up against Stipe, but then rebounded in that way. So... There are some meaningful differences. I would certainly say Tom is probably one of the better rises in the heavyweight history that you'll ever see or that we have seen. Whether it's altogether better um, than what Kane did when he first became undisputed champion. Um, up to up for debate. Fra again, Francis's was pretty good too. All right. Let's go back. And by the way, thanks for being a member, dude. Appreciate it. Here we go. With Aspinall having an A-plus win against Pavlovich and it being unlikely, John Jones fighting him in the future, who do you see as the next big test for Aspinall? Is it Cyril Gahn, Jelton Almeida? Both seem to have deficits in particular aspects of their game, which he could take advantage of. So this was something that I think we're going to get to more of this on the show tomorrow. Just when you think about the names, like what would even be a matchup you could imagine? So Almeida would be one. Right, gone would be another one. I suppose there's some other ones in the back of the pack you could do, but those would be the two likeliest ones. The Blades one, maybe you would think might happen at some point-ish. He's certainly in the never really out of the conversation, I guess I would say. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's Jones or Stipe that they could potentially pull out and make one of those. Your question was, with John not likely, who would be the next big one? I, I, I would. He's definitely going to defend at least one more time. Like when it's all said and done. It's my feeling is that he's going to be looked at as the real champion, even though he has the interim status, because I don't think John's going to fight him. Going to guess we'll see. Um, by the way, a Pavlovich rematch. He Aspinall said it himself is an inevitability. I tend to agree with that. I think it's probably gone. Almeida needs to fight Blades, or what they could end up doing is um, let me pull the rankings up here if I can for just a second at heavyweight. Yeah. So they might have Blades fight Almeida, or I guess they could do Gon versus Almeida. I don't think that they're going to, because that would ruin it for them. So it's probably going to be Cyril Gon. He's the number one contender. What else would you do? And I think they're going to, I would hope that they're going to run back that Blades-Almeida fight. That was the one that they needed to make, both for Blades and for Almeida. Um, the Gon fight's interesting. He is fleet of foot as well. He's great at distance management. Uh, but he has a relatively speaking weak ground game. This is where the the broad array of skills that Tom Aspinall has might serve him quite well. I think he's going to probably wrestle. I mean, he'll strike with him to a degree as well. But I think he'll probably win that fight by locking up with him, making him carry uh, his own weight, 
slowly grounded pounding him, breaking him down, that kind of a thing. Um, he's got the skills to do it. I don't think that Gon's just going to lay down for him, but eventually the onslaught will probably be very difficult for him to deal with. I mean, that's what I would imagine would would happen. So, dude, it's going to be interesting. Like Aspinall, dude, did you guys see what he told Laura Senko last night? He told her that he pulled his back out uh, and was barely even able to train for this fight. Did I not say last week on MK because I was talking to Ryan Hall and Ryan Hall was telling me like he nearly detached his thumb from his hand and broke his uh, jaw in the Taporia fight in like the first 60 or even like 30 seconds, some absurd amount of time. He suffered like two terrible injuries that completely derailed his efforts in that fight. And he was just saying like there's so much in terms of injuries that make these a little bit more coin flippy than you might otherwise imagine. This was a case where if I had known all that, I'd been like, dude, do not take this fight. Like, do not take this fight. And um, and he took it anyway. And look what he was able to do. I mean, when he went healthy and again, 30 years of age. As he continues to develop his to develop his wider skill set, he's already really good in a lot of places. I think he's he's going to be real tough to beat, real tough. I didn't know how last night was going to go. You know, you, you even when the odds are close, you you often get a blowout because people have just not enough information to be able to, to make a clear conclusion one way or the other. If you were able to, great. I think a lot of us were not. Um, but then you get a result like this, and it's like instantly clarifying about like where the actual pecking order really is. Um, he's going to be tough to beat. He, he, you know, he will make a mistake. He will lose eventually. Like basically all of them do. But it, it, if he's uninjured, taking fights on a normal-ish calendar, and is you know not letting fame or anything or whatever get to him, like he's really actively still working in the gym. He's going to be tough to beat. He's going to be tough. Kind of crazy, you could say, about Jones in his prime, that he wasn't actively um, doing those things and still winning. Kind of crazy. All right, let's get to it. Luke, do you think uh, Alex will be the favorite against Izzy now that he won't be weight-drained and much more prone to knockouts? 20 pounds up is literally the biggest weight class jump in the UFC. Um... He might be. He might be. One, you're right. I thought his durability looked a little bit better at 205 than it did at 185. That stood out to me. The other part, too, is the way in which he was able to win this last time, Izzy, was a little bit of the element of surprise, right? Where you, like, it's not that the win doesn't count. The win on that night, Izzy clearly outsmarted him and outfought him. That's not the question. The question is, can you repeat that particular game plan a second time? So here's what I mean. If you gave Habib Nurmagomedov the same game plan in a rematch with Justin Gaethje, do you think he'd be able to pull it off? I do. I do, right? I mean, I don't know that. I cannot prove that, but I, I, I would assume that. Now, ask that question about Izzy, where you're using the fence as a way to draw this guy into you, and then you're going in between him after inviting contact I think he would just be much more careful about that kind of contact. Contact, not in general, well, contact in general, but in particular in certain contexts. It would be hard to pull off. So now you have to beat him a bit of a different way. There could be some similarities, some kind of carryover, some lessons that matter. But you got to beat him another way. And again, like what we didn't see, and this could have been somewhat intentional, we did not really see a great answer in the second 
slash fourth fight between them in terms of Izzy having a great answer for the leg kicks. They affected him in that fight too, both fights, but that fight uh, as well. So there would have to be, I think, some meaningful differences uh, between them. I think if anybody could do it, it is him, right? But it's not like you can take what once worked and be like, yeah, I can more or less stick to that and that will work a second time. I'd be I'd be skeptical that he would fall prey to that particular kind of trap upon upon a second uh, encounter. So, or again, a fourth encounter. Well, I guess a f- fifth encounter in this particular case. But in the second one of their MMA fights, their fourth one overall, and then the next one being their fifth, I, I'd be a little bit surprised if he was if that would work a, another time. Uh, no question. I just hope next time there's a room service diaries or sit down with Glover, he brings his BFF Alex along for the ride. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, let's see. We can skip that one. Look, how sweet was it to get the entire prelims on YouTube, including the pay-per-view? We got 13 commercial-free fights, saw all the walkouts, corner work, etc. Do you think this is the new normal for UFC pay-per-view events? Well, I got to tell you, I didn't know that they did that. I saw that they were airing on YouTube. I didn't know that you got all the walkouts and corner work and everything else. If that's the case, then I would love to go back to it. I mean, dude, I have, I said this too. Like, I watched a lot of fights on Fight Pass. Just the Fight Pass interface is great. Like, just that alone is really, really strong. Um, if they're giving you that particular offering on YouTube, I would, yeah, I, I would switch my, I would switch over to watching that than what I have, which is the ESPN Plus. Obviously, there's nothing you can really do. Used to be able to order the pay-per-views on YouTube, too, but obviously now it's all exclusive to ESPN Plus. Um, I don't love their interface. I don't think it's that great of an interface. I don't think there's that many usable, fun, helpful features to it. Anything that can promote the broadcast where you can get red and blue corners, again, I'm not exactly sure what the extent is on YouTube, but anything where you can get that, where you can get, you know, you can toggle different features in different ways to customize the experience. The more of that, the better. Sure. Someone's asking, what do you think about the destruction of Poetan's leg kicks? I mean, he's got to be one of the most devastating leg kickers in UFC history. Right? He doesn't have, like, the broad array of... He has... He beat all these guys uh, with leg kick KOs. Like, he's got, you know... Like, it's... Like, the like who was that guy? Giva Santana? Was it Giva Santana who uh, he was the original arm collector because he would arm bar everybody? He was the arm collector. I mean, like actual, um, you know, he's beating these guys with leg uh, TKOs via leg kick. He's not necessarily doing that, but the instant impact on the fights that they have is remarkable. Chill Sonnen tweeted me this morning, I mean, asking me, I think, you know, to expand on why uh, I thought so highly of what. Uh, Alex had done and what would explain his success and I kind of discussed this last night I think it's basically three things he got fast-tracked from a matchmaking standpoint which some people didn't like I don't mind in his particular case secondly there was just disarray at 205 which created some unique opportunities for him and then three just getting to his style his kickboxing style has translated pretty well and it has a devastating and immediate impact it doesn't take much of him landing for it to have an altering effect on his opponent's uh, uh, um, ability to walk, move, bounce, stance, pursuit of the fight. I mean, it has this instant, immediate impact. Guys have to make quick changes and profound ones too. Like, I just have to fight from a different stance now. I have to blitz now because I can't stay at range anymore. Like, it makes, it forces you into these 
like real big decisions about how the like how you're going to pursue pursue the fight and it happens like that there are still major questions about his ground game but to me it's obviously become good enough um to do what he's done he, it's, it's become good enough it's become good enough such that it he can survive he can defend he has no real attack from there no sustained or meaningful attack but it allows him to hang on and then you know because of the nature of mma and fights restarting and he was able to get to his feet yesterday although not very technically but he, got, he was able to get to his feet um you know he he's able to hang on he's able to survive and then that kickboxing game is just so unforgiving it's completely unforgiving you're asking about the leg kicks Again, he doesn't have the leg kick TKOs on his resume in the way you would imagine, but there if you were making a list of like most effective, devastating leg kickers in UFC history, you would have to put him on that list. Who else would you put on that list? You'd put on um Pedro Hizzo, you'd put on Jose Aldo, you'd put on um Shogun for a time, you'd put all Brazilians. Uh you'd put on Justin Gaethje is a tremendous leg kicker. Um, you know, there's a bunch of other ones you could think of, but you would you would have to add them to that list. Yeah, the Brazilians kind of dominate that list, huh? Oh yes, good question. Look, I imagine you've seen Dana White's post-fight presser where a reporter asked about the possibility of a Jones and Ganu co-promotion. Dana shit on the guy hard. Yes, I did see this. What are your thoughts on that exchange and how Dana answered that question? I personally didn't think it was a dumb question. I can also see at this point how Dana's like, man, F all that. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, certainly he's allowed to give any answer that he wants. It's not it's not a question if he has to give one kind of answer or the other. He's going to give what he's going to give. And I can understand to some extent if you've got a committed business practice, continuous questions about it, probably are neither fun to listen to nor are really advancing the debate. However, I mean, you got to you have to like understand w- what was happening there. So, people really were taking it to the media guy for the way in which he was asking questions. His follow ups were a little bit um, sheepish; they were not full throated. He was kind of stumbling over himself. Also, Dana has a you know, I don't think he's been shy about this, but he has like some hearing issues, and so things have to be repeated, and stuff gets a little bit lost in terms of the normal volley of back and forth. And I, I can appreciate that fact. But the thing that Dana does that always trips up the media guys is you just have to be aware of if you're going to have like, again, I'm not, I don't, if you're going to ask him questions that there's a probability he won't like, what you have to realize is he might instantly turn the exchange into a confrontation. And so for, not like, a, oh my God, you know, I'll beat your ass. Not that kind of confrontation. But what I mean is he asked the guy, you know, he sort of like, not taunts him exactly, but he says, you know, come on, what else you got? What else you got? Like, now he's turning it into a me versus you kind of thing. And then when they ask these questions, they're unprepared for these moments. They're not like, I wasn't expecting to have, a, you know, a, uh, again, a volley in this kind of agitated way that he like kind of turns it into. And so they kind of fold and you don't really get anywhere with it. Not to say that if he didn't, Dana would like, oh my gosh, you proved me wrong. And what a, what a wonderful exercise for the public. That might never happen either, but... What ends up happening is people who go up there and just ask questions and aren't prepared for this kind of one-on-one situation, they get a little bit overwhelmed. So I'm really not I'm not really particularly mad at him, but uh, but again, I mean the answer to this one is really simple. Like <laughs> I, I just I have I, I, I well you know what I thought it was simple. I guess it's not simple. I guess it's not simple. I mean listen, I 
if you don't want the fight, then cool, right? You're allowed to like whatever fight you want or dislike whatever fight you want. I don't really have any issue with that. Um, these are your choices about what matters to you. I would question your sanity if you didn't want to see a Jones and Ganu fight. But as a general rule, you can like what you want or not. So if you don't really want to see the fight and you don't really care about it, then saying, I don't want the UFC to co-promote with the UFC is a relatively inconsistent position. I can under I don't agree with that sentiment, but I can under, at least it's consistent. But it's everyone else who I just don't get. I mean, these the people who are justifying this are saying things like, "Okay, well, let me just answer the question. Why would you want to make that fight? Why would he be asked to do that?" Well, let's see. It's not a loss for anyone. That fight it would do. Uh, it would be a financial blockbuster for all the parties involved: the PFL, the UFC, Jones, Francis. Whoever else was involved, they would probably charge a lot of money for it. They'd promote the balls off of it. They'd make a check from it. Everyone would make a bunch of money. So it's not like you're asking the UFC to take a loss. You're asking them to participate in a financial windfall, albeit with other partners in the place. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is it is literally not possible for one of these organizations, Bellator, PFL, One, to get either enough of a financial windfall or a, a visibility boost from working with UFC for it to ever really matter. The way in which the UFC's contracts work in terms of their fighters keeps them under lock and key. Folks, this is the game. This is how it works. At any point in any cycle of combat sports history, there's a group of folks that the public sees as kind of the legitimate ones, and for good reasons or bad, or true ones or false, but in general, they see whatever group as like, these guys are the ones that matter, that we see, that we know, that we care about. Um, and the way boxing works is that some of that comes from general popularity. Some of that comes from the titles they went through, sanctioning bias, which the promoter cannot have. And there's this interplay where promoters, they don't want to share what they have, but at times they kind of have to. And once there is that share, it shares the legitimacy around. If all of them are basically the public sees them with the UFC, and for good reason, but if the UFC keeps them under lock and key and doesn't have them fight anybody else, um, then they never have to share what they have got, which is that the public perceives what they have as the most legitimate end. Uh, and the real end that they care about of the sport. Like, that's why they're not doing it. But, like, what does any of that have to do with what's good for you and me, the consumer? I just don't get this at, like, at all. So, one, not even, not even making the antitrust argument, which you, by the way, the judge in the case, Judge Bulwer, specifically cited for class certification that them not co-promoting was one of the reasons. Like, we know that in writing, in writing for a fact that that was a that was a motivating factor for him putting that aside um like no way any other organization through whatever visibility they got from here would ever come close to matching or hurting the ufc's business in any kind of way it's literally impossible by how much they are controlled and not able to freely use the market to pursue their interests so you're going to make money. It's not going to challenge your business. And it's one of the biggest fights you can make in the sport right now. It's one of the biggest fights you can make in uh, MMA heavyweight history. If we cannot ask the biggest promoter in the sport to make a historically relevant fight, what the fuck are we doing? What are we doing? What the fuck are we doing? You Anyone who parrots to me how it might not be in the UFC's interest, it's like, guy, I'm not proposing that they lose money. And more to the point, what is in your interest? 
Are your interests no longer relevant because the UFC wants an industry where they want to pretend that they don't have to partner with anybody? Like, how is that in your interest? My interests are the promoters working together to make the biggest fights possible. Now, the fact is, the majority, the overwhelming majority of those are going to be just UFC and UFC alone. I get it. But on occasion, there might be one where that's not the case. This is one such case. This is the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest fight you can make in all of MMA and a historically relevant MMA fight. If the biggest promoter in the sport gets to not make this because you just don't care about your interests, what the fuck are we doing here? I just don't get this argument at all. At all. Oh, well, they can make a bunch of money without having to do it. What the fuck does that have to do with you? <laughs> what the fuck does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with the promoters of record making the fights that are historically relevant? And this is the thing that kills me. You'll see these same MMA fans who are like, this is why the UFC is the best, then turn around and say things like, and that's why boxing sucks, because they can't make the biggest fights. Let me see if I understand this. You're mad at boxing promoters for not working together to make the biggest fights that the sport could have for the fans, but you want your favorite MMA promoter to not work with other promoters so they cannot make, in this particular case, arguably the biggest fight in the sport. How the fuck does that make sense? <laughs> it's like it's like obviously nonsensical on its face. On its face. If the UFC wants to come out and say it's in our interest to not do X or Y, they are certainly welcome to do that. They are certainly welcome to do that. But that's what the score is. They should say that. And you, as a fight fan, should never, ever, ever feel like you can't ask for just fights in general, but like a historically relevant one. Like you have, comp not you, this person asking this question, but like the proverbial you, you've lost the fucking plot if we're at a place where this is no longer in, in bounds, <laughs> I'm not asking for them to co-promote on Clay Collard versus, you know, Ilya Teporia or something where you're like, I don't even understand, like, what would the fans get out of this? Like, is there fan demand for it? This is a case where there is clear fan demand for it. A financial windfall awaits the participants. If you can't ask for that, you can't ask for anything. You can't ask for anything. If you can't ask for a fight like that to be made, you are absolutely not a a allowed to ask for jack shit. Nothing. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nada. Not a thing. Not possible. Can't do it. Not allowed. I just, I it baffles me where it's like, hey, I need to get my tires changed past 5 o'clock. Oh, this business down the street doesn't want to stay open past 5. Um... But, you know, they will for X and Y clients for no particular reason. You're like, why, why, do I, I, why do I have to? How is this good for me? Always ask, like, what is in your interest? You're allowed as a consumer or, but, but listen, everyone's got interests. Promoters have interests. Um, the fighters are going to have interests. The fans are going to have interests. Consumers, any which way you want to, like, categorize people, they're going to have interests. And some of those interests are going to be competing and some of those are going to be overlapping and we can work out what happens in the spaces in between. But the point I'm just trying to, to make here to everyone is consumer interests are real and they are perfectly legitimate. That doesn't mean every one of their whims have to be met. Um, that doesn't mean that they're the final say. Again, it's a competing set of interests. 
it'll all work itself out in the wash. But as a consumer, are you uh, allowed, and I would even argue, you know, if you're a good fan, expected, but certainly are you allowed to ask for one of the biggest, if not the biggest fight that can be made in the sport and a historically relevant one for the division that it's in? Yeah. Yeah, you are. You are. I cannot understand the peasant mentality of someone who is willing to look the other way on one of the best fights that can be made to protect an entity's interest, which in this particular case is antithetical to theirs. It requires serious, serious poverty of understanding the power dynamics in play here. Can't do it, won't do it. I'm like Mike Singletary, cannot do it, cannot win with him, cannot do it. It's okay, last thing on this, it's okay to be rational and be like, I don't know how likely any of this consumer pressure is to really affect them. You know, they're probably going to do what they're probably going to do. And then you can be a realist about that. I don't mind that, of course. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with being somewhat understanding of the probability of events? On the other hand, that's not the same as like, well, then I'll just stop asking. You know, I just don't care anymore. I'll stop asking for those kinds of fights when they don't exist and they don't matter or they don't exist anymore. You can't make them. But you can make them. And it'd be hot. And it'd be amazing. And you could do this. And by the way, the other part is, you're like, we tried to do this when Francis was here. They did. But now that fight's even bigger. Now the fight's even bigger than it was back then. It's actually bigger now than it was. It's actually a different fight in terms of how big it was. And it was big before. It was big before. Um, and they were going to pay him good money for it. No doubt about it. But... It's even bigger today. So why would they do it? I don't know. They can figure that out on their own. I'm not asking them to take a financial loss. I'm asking them if we cannot ask the biggest promoter in the sport to put on arguably the biggest fight, who the fuck can we ask? Who is the other entity we can go to and be like, okay, well, they won't do it. Will you? Because seems to me that if they're not doing that, we have got some fucked up situation that we've inherited that you're just being asked to pretend is good for you. Much of that might be good for you, but as it relates to this particular fight, them just deciding they're not going to work with PFL is not good for you. It's not in your interests. Unless you just hate the fight, I guess, but I don't know what the argument would be for that. Okay, back to this. With Alex Pareto winning his second weight class title, a stat line that I haven't heard often, is that he's defeated four different UFC champions, whether they be current, future, or former. He's had an incredibly strange career. What do you see as the next logical step in the title picture of that division? Yeah, let me pull up his resume here if I can. Um, I want to see that. Not that I, I mean, I've, I've seen someone else repeat this. So let me just pull it up here if I can. All right, let's go back to that if we can here. Like this. So you got former champion, Jesus Christ, uh, former champion, former champion, current champion. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, he's an interesting one. Now you're asking, let me go back here. What do you see as the next logical step in the title picture in that division? So again, getting back to consumer demand here. Basic question you have to ask yourself. Is there enough interest and could it be made in a timely enough manner 
where you would want to go with the fifth fight between Izzy and Alex and why you wait for Jamal to come back. Because I said this before, Jamal is entitled to a title fight the instant he returns. No, I mean, I, I, he wouldn't get a tune-up if he wanted it, but you get the idea. Like, no tune-ups, no first this, then that. Nope. Right away, you get your title shot when you get back. So, I just don't know how long that's going to be. Don't know how long Izzy's going to be out. We don't really know. If there's a way to work that out, then... Um, I don't really care what the order is. If there's, if there's, uh, to put it this way, if there's nothing conflicting about the order, then I have no strong preference. Uh, but if there's anything that would conflict with Jamal getting it first, that would not be okay. He, you could not get in the way of that. Short of that, I don't really care. Short of that, he can fight the winner of Walker and Ankalaev if they could do it again very quickly. Uh, at that point, I don't, I don't really care. Um, but, like, do I have an interest more generally in a fifth fight between them? I have to tell you, for the reasons aforementioned, yes, I do. I don't think he could follow a... a uh, I don't think he could look back at the game plan that worked in the last one and easily repeat that. I would want to see what other solutions he could implement to get where he wanted to go. Now, remember, he won three of those rounds and I think was winning the fifth. I'm having trouble remembering that. I just remember by the time the fight was stopped... He had won, in my mind, comfortably three rounds. Um, so it's not like he didn't figure out a way to win rounds in that fight too. But, you know, new weight class, different situation. Yeah. Man, this one just breaks my heart. If you were in Durance camp, what would you recommend her next move be? I would think time away on to focus on striking. Also... Any word on why Ruka shut down? I think BC was killing me, and some other folks were killing me. Dude, I did not know that was pronounced Ruka. I've been in, I've been in this sport for a long time, and I, I thought it was RBCA. I never had conversations about it. So, I'm a donk. I'm a donk. Um, all right, but that aside, man. What do you do with Dern? Um, I... I think a couple of things. I think, um, you know, without having a closer understanding of exactly what has held her back all this time, it's a little hard to diagnose. I think I, we counted it last night, right? She had like 12 UFC fights. She's now 30 years old. So there's still time left to really round a couple of corners. But the clock is ticking. I mean, ticking hardcore at this point. And, and the, the, the lesson that I took from last night is... You know, uh, oh, you know what? I'm going to pull this up because I got shit on for it in real time. And uh, I want to show it to you. Here we go. Hold on. Yeah, here we are. Pull this up. Yeah, here, hold on. Let me show this to you this was after her fight in may against uh against angela hill for fuck's sake elon here hold on let me take let me let me see if i can make this a little smaller doesn't really help let me switch this around so you can see like this no that didn't work here how about like this there we go uh, this is what I wrote. Dern is absolutely fighting with more urgency and is showing better ground and pound than normal. That's making a real difference and is exciting to see. But this performance is not a radical departure from the issues previously limiting her upside. Yeah, I would love someone to tell me that's wrong now. 
I would love for someone to tell me that's wrong now. Um, she did show improvement. There was offensive urgency. There was better weighted positions for ground and pound in that fight with, with Hill. Like it's, I'm not telling you that there's not been improvements. There have been. But for someone who already had two major advantages, one, the grappling background and how decorated it was, and then second, for someone from jiu-jitsu to have composure under fire and not really break when you're getting hit with big shots is so it's not it's not common it's like in the and her and her composure is excellent now i realize that then she'll do these combinations where she's tripping over herself and then kind of closing her eyes and winging it but when she gets hit she doesn't lose her bearing like that so you know that's a really strong thing for her you got two of the if if you're got someone who's already that good of an athlete who's lived an athlete life who's got that much composure under fire and those kinds of skills on the mat by age 30 and 12 UFC fights, she should be much further along than she is. She should be much further along than she is. She is just not far along enough. Um, so the question is why? Does she not train the way she's supposed to? Is she immune to coaching? Is she, uh, are her coaches unable to do the job effectively? I, you know, she's had some good coaches in the past. She was with MMA Labs. She was Jason Perillo. These are not. These are not bad coaches. These are good coaches. Uh, I, I don't know what the situation is and what to diagnose it. It just seems to me she has to be put in an environment where, one, she can get specialized coaching, like really someone very attentive to her particular needs and development and understanding where she's at and where to go and what the best thing places are to build her along, while also being in something of a competitive team environment that really forces more of a bit of a... Um, you know, not breaking her down physically, but a bit of a competitive trial by fire where you really have to, um, you really have to be on your game uh, in these environments. One, because there could be other women who are really doing well in the UFC at that time. So there's a bit of a you know career pressure. Uh, but also that, you know, she's getting pushed in training enough where they're not, again, they're not breaking her down, but they're forcing a kind of competitive response from her that can become the norm. Um, but that's just kind of a bit of a guesswork. I don't really know to what to attribute. Everyone wants to say, oh, she needs to do this and do that. It's like, okay, but why specifically does she have poor wrestling? Why specifically is her striking, despite the fact she's worked with good coaches, um, not where it needs to be? These seem to me like deeper questions than just, did she hire competent people? It seems like she's hired competent people. Um, and she is a good athlete, and she is obviously just you know lights out on the ground there's just no two ways about it she should be further along man she should be much much further along you cannot be this far along and then this far behind and especially when you've been you've got other sort of competitive advantages at hand um i would go to some kind of big team where there was big team practices while keeping some kind of very particular coaching work private um, to what some of your needs were. And that would require probably, you know, relocating and spending a bunch of money, which I don't know if she has any interest or inclination to do, especially as a mother, which I can understand and sympathize with. But it's a problem. It is a problem. Good question. What could be next for Benoit Saint Denis after finishing Frivola? It would have to be, it would have to be potentially a, a, a ranked guy at this point. Where, where 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 was was Frivola ranked in this one? I don't think he was. Right? Maybe he was. Let me see here. At lightweight, was he ranked? Yes, he was fourteen. 
So here are the names above him, right? What would you want to see? 10 is Dos Anjos. 11 is Jalen Turner. That'd be a sick fight. 12 is Bobby Green. That'd be a sick fight. 13 is Hanato Moicano. I mean, dude, basically any of those. I mean, listen listen to like lightweight. 7 is Fazeev. 8 is Saryuki. And 9 is Dan Hooker. And as I mentioned before, RDA, Jalen Turner, Bobby Green, Hanato Moicano. Dude, any of the, literally any of those. Any of those. Any of those would be absolutely sick. You're asking who could push him a little bit further. Moicano would push him, I think, a little bit. Green's an interesting one because um, of what his experience is. Jalen Turner would have a fucking amazing fight on the feet, and RDA is about as battle-tested as it gets. Dude, any of those would be absolutely fantastic. Would love it. Would love seeing any of them. Yeah, someone asking about the upper bound limits of Tom Aspinall. He's he's as close as I've seen to to Kane. Kane didn't have the um, submission prowess in that way, or at least the submission inclination. But there was really no phase where you felt like he couldn't compete. There was no one you were really worried about like taking his back. That was not a thing at the area in which he was competing. Like, could you fight on the feet? Could you fight on the ground? Could you wrestle? Did you have cardio? And he had cardio fucking for days in his prime. It was absurd. So in that sense, he was really, really well-rounded. Tom's a little different. I don't know if he's got Kane's wrestling and ground and pound the same way. But, like, you know, you can just go back to the Volkov fight. He's got submissions, uh, and we'll go to them. And that was a very good one. Um, But he's of that ilk. He's of that elk. He reminds me of that. Like what what you're seeing is a, something of a more well-rounded, more slightly more modern. You know, he doesn't quite have the same. He's got his. He has his own unique style. He bounces more in the stand-up. There's like all kinds of differences I could point out, but he is something of the heir to what Kane was when he was coming around. Man, I just. I, it, it sometimes it kind of. I, sometimes I look and see like what numbers Kane does on his interviews or like how much they get shared. You know, and of course they go viral to a degree, especially if he talks about his court case. But, you know, the level of celebrity around him is, you know, it's waned, obviously, since he's not really actively doing anything other than fighting this um, situation that he's in. But at his peak, man, there was a shit ton of interest in him. And people were extremely excited about him and what it meant. And, like, beating Brock the way he did was such a massive triumphant moment for a heavyweight you were like dude look at this guy like who is i remember i remember when he beat brock you were like how the fuck is anyone in this division going to beat him and then he fights jds and that was a terrible fight for him he was way too injured when he came back and avenged it tenfold uh you know he was he was just another level tom tom i i again the celebrity factor is different but i might be as excited for tom as i am or as i was for kane like how how skilled and just your 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 reason for optimism you begin to think like isn't he good at that and isn't he good at that too and didn't he do this to that guy and it's like he barely got tested here and you know again there's still questions that remain we're going to get to some of those questions on mk tomorrow there are questions that remain you don't have a complete answer on all of the positives and negatives about Tom Aspinall, that's not fully well known. And everyone will eventually show them. The great St. Pierre eventually had to show them. And, 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 and John Jones, too. You get a sense of everyone's limits over time, win or lose. We still don't know a lot about Tom. But this guy 
in terms of what I felt about like next gen heavyweights who have so many different things to offer. Tom is as close as I've seen to anyone since since Kane. And Francis was a little bit different too because Francis when he upped up now Francis is well rounded now. I said this before I the uh, the second uh, or uh, before um he fought Tyson Fury. I rewatched the second Stipe fight. Dude, he fucking washed Stipe in that fight. I mean, it was one-way traffic. He's well-rounded now, but before the first one, he was not nearly as well-rounded. He was really raw, whereas it felt like Kane was advanced. It feels like Tom Aspinall is advanced in that way. So he doesn't have that kind of crossover star appeal where Kane was really tapping into the Mexican the Mexican market before anyone really was. The Hispanic market here, he was tapping into that before anyone really was. I don't know what kind of celebrity Tom is back home in England. I guess we'll see what he becomes in the next year or so. But there is a bit of a difference in terms of the level of celebrity. But he is the heir to what that guy represented, it seems like. I'm trying to think of who else it would be. I don't know who else it would be. Because Cormier was, you know, a teammate and took over, but it was late. And he was beating up on other kind of guys that either Stipe didn't fight or, excuse me, that um, Kane didn't fight or he didn't matter. Interesting. Good question about something. This person writes, as a very biased and happy Englishman, I think Aspinall dethrones John and is potentially set for a chance to break the heavyweight title defense record afterwards down the line. What do you think? Guys, remember, the title defense record is still just three. Still just three. Uh, That seems like somebody could beat that, right? (laughs) That seems like <coughs> that seems like we might actually get a shot at seeing that. That doesn't seem like that. Uh, I'm not going to say easy to beat, but that difficult. I don't know something like that. Uh, someone's asking about why Alex's leg kicking game is seemingly above everyone else's. There's two. There's basic. There's three basic issues with with it. I, I don't fully understand his mechanics. I'd need to really feel it, and which I don't want to do. But I would need to study it more closely to really get a better sense. And I will do some tape study. We'll have some stuff for you. But um, he has an economy of motion, which means he can throw it um, more readily. He can th- he can throw it without having to change more about what he's doing to land it. Um, without having to change much about his balance or his stance or his setups. Uh, It's extremely powerful when it lands. So he's got this real interesting economy of motion that maintains power that doesn't force him to change a lot of other things he's doing in order to accommodate, right? He's not landing on one foot and then stepping out hard, you know, to get full torque and then chop on it. He's not doing any of that. It's just, it just comes up and touches you just like that. So the the economy of motion allows him to maintain stance and balance and range much more much more easily than some of the other alternatives. I think that's part of it. He's got a real interesting way in which he's developed the act of throwing it. And because he's got great striking skills, his timing on it is good, his accuracy is good, his range management on it is good, his ability to use it for other to to assist in the development of other strikes is good. The actual, the act, the, the the central question of like what is that economy of motion? I would need to more closely study it. There, there's been some stuff out there. You can go take a look on it. But that's the difference. A lot of guys have leg kicking games that require them to be a little bit closer. That require them to get out of their stance, to change their balance, to change their positioning, 
um, in much bigger ways. And again, it's like any kind of thing. If I step this, however far away you step, you're eventually going to have to step back, right? However far you move to get out of the way of a punch, that's how far you're going to have to move back. So that's why everything, when they, someone slips a punch, it's just tiny motions. It's small motions, right? So that you don't have to come back. The more you have to change to accommodate to throw, the more you have to undo that um, to unwind from that process to get back where you're going. He has eliminated so much of that. It's just real economical stab, you know. Um, thoughts on a matchup between Hill and Pereira? There were a couple of interesting moments where you can get through pressure. You can get... So, like, what's one thing that Alex doesn't do? Like, what's one thing he just doesn't do? He doesn't roll under hooks. You ever notice that? Never rolls. He maintains really good distance. He'll get his head off the line, but he's not going to U-shape it underneath. He's not going to roll for a hook. So what he does as a result is he maintains far range. He's good about getting his head out of the way. But one of the limits of that is if you can get him backing up, and even if he's going at an angle, you can still hit him, he'll just pull his head back. He'll just pull it back. He's got it, you know, he, you can look at his style from a boxing perspective and be like, I don't like this, that, and the other. He makes the best fighters break all the rules. So he can do all of these things. But the point I'm trying to make is he pulls his head back, and you saw, um, you saw Yuri have a little bit, little bit of success with that, both in the first and second round, especially in the second round, really pressuring into him. And being able to get him to move in that way and then following up with he was getting right hooks over the top of the left of uh Alex and they were scoring. Dude, Jamal Hill can do that. Jamal Hill can definitely do that. Jamal Hill, you know, you can say, I think one of the criticisms might be is like, I think he's really worked on his defensive liabilities. Um, you know, how much again, what are the levels? Survive, defend, attack. He's got survive and defend on the ground, I think, in many ways, even better than Alex. I don't know how much attack he has there. But on the feet, dude, he's got great punching power, great accuracy, good timing, good boxing, himself good distance management. He's got the ability to slip and counter, which I think will serve him very well. That's an interesting fight. I know people are kind of crazy high on Alex for very good reasons. Uh, and I think that Jamal winning and then immediately getting injured didn't help his momentum necessarily as much as it could have. So I, I'm not even saying that I would pick Jamal to win or lose. I don't, I don't I have to think about it more. I'm, you're asking me on the fly, but um, I, I feel like there are people who are somewhat discounting what Jamal can do because he has, again, relative to, you know, someone who's like insanely well-rounded, he's got a bit of a narrower skill set, but in that narrowness, man, um, he is potent. He is lethal. So, the boxing combinations uh, through pressure, um, when a guy just pulls like that, you can you can light him on fire for it. You can definitely do that. If he can't pull, and especially if he's up against the fence, if he can't pull, uh, he's got nowhere to go. Uh, that's going to be. That, I think these are, you know, much easier said than done. Oh yeah, just back him up to the fence and get him to you know to to either pull or not be able to pull. You know, none of that is fucking easy, but we're talking about the very best guys in the weight class. Like, one of them can and probably will be able to pull that off. Um, don't know if it will be Jamal, but, you know, it'll happen sooner or later. Oh, here we go. Curious to know where Alex ranks among the best leg kickers in UFC history. Yeah, great question. He had great success with it before getting KO'd in the second Izzy fight. 
and he had great success with it again versus Yuri. He seems to throw it so fast and with such little tell, his opponents really struggle to read it, and they absorb it like a motherfucker. Yeah. Boy, where does he rank all times? We kind of went through this before. Um, Again, Pedro Hizzo, him, uh, Edson Barboza. Edson Barboza is one of the great kickers, period, not just leg kickers. Um, Aldo, Gaethje. Who else is a dynamic leg kicker? Again, Shogun. Um, you could say Anderson Silva, too. He was a good leg kicker. Uh, four-time. Actually, Force Griffin was pretty good. I wouldn't put him all-time best, but, you know, he had a respectable run. So those are some of the, the names we've said before. Those are, the, I would put him there. Again, if we're talking about best leg kickers, I feel like you would need to have... Um, his are so good that people don't even really try... Like, even with some of these other good leg kickers that I've mentioned, Boz Rutten's another good one. Um, well, that's like a different era. So was Pedro Hizzo, but whatever. Some of these leg kickers, they're good, but guys still try to fight through it, and so you get these like long runs where they get just completely torched, you know. But you have this all this like brutal tape. Guys with him, guys with Pedro, they're like they get like two or three of those, and they're like, dude, fuck all this. They immediately, they immediately switch. So he doesn't quite have, and he hasn't fought as many times in the UFC, so he doesn't quite have the same kind of highlight reel. Um, I would put, maybe put him a little bit under Aldo. I would maybe put him, the question is I have to go back and review Shogun's resume. Would I put him above Shogun? Probably not. Not to say that he doesn't have that ability, but just what has been delivered. I, I have to think about it. I don't know. I would not have him number one. I would not. But he's on the short list. Top five? Top five? Something like that. All right. Ooh, interesting one. Okay, here we go. Uh, time to sweeten the okay bet pot. If you win, BC gets a disposable vape tattoo in addition to attending your abortion rock concert pick. If BC wins, you have to get a hot dog tattoo in addition to his fish tribute band concert pick. Tattoo must be permanent and at least one inch long and visible in safer work location. Yeah, let me just explain to you. I don't care about betting that much. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care about betting that much. There's nothing you can get me to do to be like, put on the line a hot dog tattoo. Like, no. I also don't even care enough for him to get a vape tattoo that that, ma like that, that, that moves me emotionally, you know? People asking, like, what kind of chance do you give Aspinall of beating John Jones? A good one. A real good one. If John is out long enough and you see Aspinall defend one, maybe two more times, I think people will come around on this pretty easily. Now, if he gets KO'd, then, you know. Again, we don't fucking know. They're not going to fight, so, or, well, they're unlikely to fight. So getting the actual answer to the question is hard to know. But you would imagine that um, Sergey had the same reach as John Jones, right? 84-inch reach, I believe that's right. Uh... Now, of course, Sergey is not John Jones. John Jones is not Sergey, but you can see that he was able to navigate that with both technical merit and athletic gifts. I think he'd be real. Hard. I think John Jones, have, John Jones would have a real hard time with him. Yeah. Do I think John could win? Sure, but I'd probably lean Aspinall. Dude, Aspinall's a beast. He's a fucking beast. Was it more of? Oh, good question. Was it more of Andrade stepping up or Dern dropping down? In my opinion, Dern's been a media darling. The Hill fight was an anomaly for her striking. Similar to Ronda versus Betch, but like we saw Thing come back to Earth. 
Andrade was also more patient and not chasing like a bull, which hurt her here, which hurt her in the Blanchfield fight. Ooh. Um, was it more of Andrade stepping up or Dern dropping down? <coughs> it's more of Dern never stepping through, like never really reaching the part which she needed to. Dern, like people are like, oh, well, Dern's just a media darling. Dude, if you're trying to figure out who's going to be the next great fighter and someone comes to you from another sport, like in this particular case, obviously jiu-jitsu, and, you know, forget what their name is, but if they have her resume, how would you not be like, oh, yeah, right. She could do really well in women's MMA, especially when she was trying to make her name, which was what, you know, I forget when she made her debut, 2017, 2018, around that mark, you know. Uh, why would you look at her resume and be like, oh, yeah, no way. You would, of course, have questions. You'd be like, we have to see. And we'll see how things go. But you would be high on her, too. Like that, the fact that she was a media darling, she didn't make anybody do that. The media did that. And you could say they were wrong. And that's fine. But, like, that was not a guess that seemed crazy. And, by the way, jury's still out to a degree. But it, that's not, that was not a crazy call when we were making Here, here, look, look, just please, for one second. If you've never done this, and we can go look at this at BJJ Heroes too, like what is her resume, right? What is her resume? Let's take a look at it here real quick, if we can. Okay, so she has a gold medal in ADCC in 2015. Uh, she had a gold medal in her weight class in ADCC, so she has she has two gold medals uh, in her weight division. Uh, oh, sorry, that was the North American Championship. So she has the one. But the, she has the one gold medal. So she has the highest honor available to her. And remember, there's only two weight classes. There will be three coming up. But there's only two weight classes in in, in women's jiu-jitsu for ADCC and then the absolute. So, you know, she winning her weight class is uh, no small achievement. So she won that. Okay. The World Jiu-Jitsu Championships in 2015, she got the gold. In the Nogi, this is the, this is the IBJJF Nogi World Championships, which during this time was still highly prestigious. She got it, the gold medal in her weight class, in the black belt, and, and she got it in the fucking absolute, okay? In the Pan Americans, she took gold in 2015, silver for the absolute. In the Europeans, these are all, these are all at the time in which she was doing this, 2013, 2014, 2015, these were by far the A-list premier tournaments to go to their gi, but, you know, still. Uh, she, she got gold medal in the Europeans. She got two gold medals back-to-back -back years, at 58 kilos in the in the they call these the Brasileiros, the Brazilian National Championships, and then this is a slightly different one, the Asian Open. Uh, this might be this might be IBJJF. Nevertheless, she got gold uh, in her weight class and absolute, and then the World Cup, which is a slightly different one uh, tournament, she got it um, the gold medal there as well. And then you can go through the World Jiu-Jitsu Championships. This is a, I think a separate tournament, but just look at the gold. Gold in 2016, gold at the Pans, gold at Europeans, gold at Asians, and then gold at the World Cup there. So we have an ADCC, IBJJF, and then the other competing organizations. She won everything basically that she could win in terms of getting a gold medal, except for not getting the the gold medal for ADCC, which I think that year she would have had to gone up against Gabby Garcia or some shit. But basically, basically, she won everything she could. How would you look at that in 2016 to 2017 whenever she made the leap and be like, yeah, I don't really see her as having real potential. You'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah, like of course we're going to keep an eye on her. So that's really not her fault um, in any way. It's just a question of what has happened since then. And the development's just not really there. It's just not really there.
All right, let's see if we got a good one here. How did Brian Minner score round one for Dern against Andrade? Great question. Don't fucking know. Don't know. Hold on. We got this one. We can pull this one up too. God damn. I looked at this one yesterday and I was like, my man, you are having a rough day. A rough day. Here, look at this. I'll pull this up. I'll show it to you. Christ on crutches. Hold on. Okay, take a look at this. Take a look at this. I'll pull this up here. So let's find Brian Minner. Where was he? Here, I'll throw this up a little bit too. All right. So where is Brian Minner? So this was the Buzuki uh, Emmers fight. It went to uh, first round uh, finish, so no. Josh Van versus Kevin Borjas. Do we have him here? Brian Minner. He had that one I don't have any issue with. This is a fine scorecard. No problem. All right. All right, so we have this contest. Uh, he was not in any way participating. Then we had the Jared. How about Jared Gordon beating Mark Matson? That was fucking sick. Not really relevant. This fight was amazing. Here we go, Brian Minner. Dude, round eight, the other two judges gave it a 10-8 and a 10-8. Chris Lee and Derek clearly gave it a 10-8, and he had it as a 10-9. So to me, to me, that's already a red flag. Should have had that one a 10-8, bud. I mean, I don't know what's happening there. All right. Actually, can I go to this one? Yes, I can. Very good. Uh, so then we have this one. He finished him off the Mateus Rombeski fight. Rombeski fight. I don't know how to pronounce Polish. He he looks like a tank. Tabitha Ricci and Lupi Godinez. He has a 30-27 for her. Now here's the counter argument that you might want to pay attention to. Let's go to Sal D'Amato and then Derek Clearly, who both scored the fight 29-28 in this particular case for the winner, ultimately Lupi Godinez. What you'll note, what you'll note is Sal Diamato gives her the first and second round, and Derek clearly gives her the first and third round, meaning the common denominator in this particular case would be the ten, they both gave a 10 in this one. Um, but let me see. Yes, in the other cases, in round two, at least one of them gave it to uh, Ricci, and then in this particular case also gave it to Ricci. So you have a case where in the other rounds, some of the other, one, at least one of the other judges found a round for Ricci. It's just between those two, they couldn't find the first. So what's really interesting to me about all of this is he just gave all three. I don't understand how you can do that. Like, I understand how you could see one round for them or two, but like, even though these two judges at least found a round for Ricci in the second and third, right? Saudi Amato has a her in the third, clearly has her in the second. Even though that's the case, there's to be something altogether different finding all three for her. Because I've seen people be like, well, if they can find a second and a third, what's so hard about someone finding the first? And then it just ends up being that you have three. To me, it's it's not so simple. To me, it requires something a little bit different to arrive in that position to begin with. You have to have a certain kind of preference for what you must be looking at in terms of what's going on in a fight for you to arrive at that position. If the other ones are very calculatedly, you can get there, but um, they still see the broader picture much more differently. People want to be this do this arithmetic where like, well, if one person can see this one and one person can see that one, how... How outrageous is it to find all three? It is outrageous to find all three because there, it would require, in my judgment, uh, a not a jaundiced view, but a kind of view that is not in keeping with the scorecard 
to ultimately arrive there. You have to do a lot of like leeway granting to do it. And by the way, the last thing on this, and these are numeric totals, so like understand something about that. If we pull up Tabitha Ricci fight metric, if we pull up the numbers here, let's go back for just a second. If we pull up the numbers here, and I will blow these up so you can see them. Let's go to this one. This was last night's fight. These are just numeric totals, but let's take a look at them. Pretty close in the first. Godinez scoring five more numeric totals and then eight more in that one. Ricci failing on two takedowns here, failing on three, and they both failed on one. Some control time pressing into the fence here. Um, let's see here. Targeting the head. Da -da 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 -da. Not a sign. Yeah, you know what? Listen, here's what I'll say. In the end, it's combined with the 10-8 and the other mistake we're going to talk about here in a minute that this looks a little bit more suspect. But I guess I do recognize, the, the to me, this was the one where you judge, judge under one scoring system and it like very clearly comes out for Godinez. The round by round, it can get parsed a little bit, but I still don't think it's a great scorecard. Okay, let's see. Uh, where is he on the any of these? Brian Minow, this one didn't matter because he got finished. Uh, Brian Minner is here. This one. Yeah, and then a 10-9 for Dern. It's just sort of like odd, isn't it? Like, I understand the argument for her a little bit. Um, sorry, not in the first not in the first round. Hold on. Though, Dern had a couple of moments where she was popping um, the head back of... You know, she was in there kind of slugging it out a little bit with Jessica Andrade. Let's pull this up here if we can. So let's look at that first round. So Andrade, yeah, I mean, this is why I don't understand it. Andrade got the knockdown in round one. They were relatively even in terms of the numeric totals, Dern failing on three takedowns. But to me, the knockdown was much better than any of that other 24 significant strikes she was able to land here, right? And then she got three knockdowns in the second round. But the knockdown at the end of the round, it's like, dude, we're, if we're assessing damage and then bringing someone to the, the precipice of defeat, this qualifies in the criteria as the most important thing that happened that round. I get that before that, Dern was having a little bit of success. It was back and forth. But there's your trump card. Your trump card is the knockdown that happened um, relatively close to the end of the round. Like, that clearly seals it. It's just a really unusual scorecard. It's an, un uh, it's an un unusual series of judging. It's not giving the 10-8. It's not recognizing the knockdown here. It's not recognizing some of the differences in what Godinez was doing. It's kind of like undermining. The, the consistent theme feels like they're undermining important observations of their achievement he should have had. Just He's missing it for some reason. It's uh, It seems like what the scoring, uh, what the judging kind of tells you there. Interesting, right? Really weird. All right. I didn't mention this up front because I felt bad for missing the show on Thursday. If you guys have any of the, you've got some of the stuff for the Super Chats. If you've got anything there, we can get to them now. I appreciate it. Let's take a look. Uh, okay. Shaq Life asks, of eligible realistic opponents for Tom Aspinall, Francis Jones doesn't seem likely. Who poses the biggest threat to him? We don't have a lot of questions about how his ground game is fully tested. I wonder what Blades might have to say about it. I wonder what Almeida might have to say about it. Um, these are I, 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 don't, I don't think that those, I especially don't think in the case of Almeida, but I don't know this. We, we, we just don't have a great enough test. Um, those seem kind of interesting to me. Pavlovich will get a second crack. That will be interesting to me. But like, who is on his level that's an active competitor on that roster? It's hard to see who that would be. Uh, thank you, Afifi96. 
What makes Pereira's left hook so devastating? Again, it's a little bit. It's a little bit. Um, it's a little bit similar to so the some of the th- things ways we discuss his leg kick. Again, we talked about it before. He kind of holds his hands. He's not here, right? He's not here. He's here, right? So again, there's not a lot of tell. His footwork. He pulls you into traps. He walks his way into dominant angles. So it's not just his left hook. It's how you're positioning around him, how he's positioning around you. But also, if my hand's here and I want to touch, and I want to touch the the lens, I've got to travel a far distance. If my hands are here, I'm not as protected in this space. But it's much easier for me to whip. And he doesn't for a hook. Again, you can go like like this. You can turn it over if you want. You know, uh, I think they, some people call it the American versus non-American hook. Um, he does it like this coming around. So it's got this interesting angle too where there's not a ton of wind-up. He's able to find it. He's unnaturally powerful. But when you go back, like you're asking like, what's the left hook? Why was it so devastating, for example, in the Sean Strickland fight? Well, one, because he was jabbing, jabbing, jabbing. And then when he goes, it it's hard to tell exactly what's gonna what, what it's going to look like. And of course, he's bringing your hands down. He'll faint low and then come up. But it's quick, it's powerful, it's set up well. He was doing, his footwork was he was constantly turning and Sean was following him. So he was walking him into the trap. So it's not just about the kind of power he can generate from it and how he's able to set it up with other strikes. It's the movement inside the space and then how he holds his hands. He can get to the target quickly and being unnaturally powerful, he doesn't need a big windup to get there. He just kind of comes around. And he can just do a shit ton with it. So he's got natural gifts that, like all good fighters, he amplifies with very, not just good technique, but technique specific to his body type and fighting style that make it all really work well. Terrence asks, is the UFC trying to hurt their case? First, they call PFL and others the B-League, and then they admit that they have a monopoly on the MMA market by saying they won't co-promote because of lack of sales. You know, it's kind of funny. I said it before. Judge Bulware in the case has specifically pointed to the fact that they don't co-promote as one of the reasons why he certified the class. Um, you'd have to ask them. I don't really know exactly. Are, are you asking, are they hurting their own case? So there's two cases. There's Lee versus Zufa, which is the one from 2011 to 2016. And then there's the Cajun Johnson case, which is everything thereafter. I guess we will find out as the Cajun Johnson case moves forward. It, it, it seems to me like the UFC doesn't appear to be very concerned about any of this. I, I Maybe they are, and they're just not acting that way. Um, it is strange that they haven't amended anything. It's like of all the things you could amend, of all the reasons why you would want to amend uh, one of your practices, making John versus Francis. I mean, I realize that they hate Francis, or at least Dana might hate Francis. And so, like, you know, part of this just becomes I could never work with those people. But it's like, yeah, but you might have bigger fish to fry. Um I don't know. Are you familiar with Bellator's Georgian contender? You're talking about Levon Chokali. And if so, can you elaborate? You dub best. Waiting for that promised video on Georgia's. Yeah, that'll come. Uh, Levon Chokali, a guy who, uh, I mean, I have to go through and see. Like, he had a stoppage win, I think, in his last fight. He had a couple of decisions along the way. Was a good fighter who was really raw and underdeveloped. I think he's in his late-ish 20s. And has just massively, massively improved. Let me pull up. He had a surprising couple of wins. Um, Chokely. There we are. 
So what was it? He fought, that's right, the Sabahomasi fight. He finished him off with a front kick in the first round. And then he beat Roman Feraldo, who had a bunch of hype, took it from him, and then beat Michael Lombardo. Lost to Goichi Yamauchi and Kyle Kretschmer, Kretschmer who are, is a good wrestler slash Yamauchi, very good submission fighter. Yamauchi's kind of like the Charles Oliveira of Bellator. Um, but he has improved rapidly. How old is he now? Jokali is currently sitting at 27. Yeah, exactly. So he just looks like another one of these Georgian guys who is starting to put it all together in every dimension. Uh, last time you used threads, app was DOA for me. I, I can't remember the last time. I, I, was I was hoping someone would figure out a way to, you know, in the free market, find some kind of app that could compete with Twitter. And uh, Zuckerberg can't figure that out. Apparently his new Ray-Ban sunglasses are pretty good. But... Uh, but they didn't figure it out with threads. It's like it's like intensely boring, you know. Twitter is too many people yelling at each other, and it's toxic. But the opposite has just not really worked for me. UFC main cards at MSG have a total of twenty three finishes and twelve decisions. God bless New York City, bro. What did you think about Dean Thomas's scathing comments on Dern's corner during the fight? Stay up, bro. Um, dude, Dean doesn't fuck around, man. <laughs> I've had many conversations with Dean about, like, he loves fighters, but he doesn't baby them. You know what I mean? Like, fans might love fighters or hate fighters, and that will change your relationship to them one way or the other. He doesn't, he loves some of them, obviously, but he doesn't hate them at all. But what he absolutely refuses to do, I mean refuses... He refuses to be dishonest with them, and he refuses to baby them. And I got to be honest, dude, like, you know, in MMA, it's not that people don't shit on each other all the time. They do, but a lot of it is just bullshit stuff. Like, I don't like this person for some unrelated reason to why you... I don't like this person because they're associated with X. I don't like this person because they believe in some kind of worldview that I don't like. And it's just, you know... I'm just going to make personal insults or I'm going to have some kind of stupid war that's not really about the substance of things. Dean doesn't engage in any of that. You ever notice that? He doesn't really do any of that shit. But when it comes to like actually having criticisms of fighters in terms of the things that they're doing that are holding them back, dude, he will not pump the brakes. He will not pump the brakes. So I got to tell you, I find Dean's honesty refreshing. Doesn't mean I always agree with him, and I don't think he always agrees with things I say either. Like, he's had some comments about fighter pay that I thought over time were really wrong. But on this particular kind of thing, a fighter doing things wrong, holding themselves back, as a former fighter himself and coach, he's just very unforgiving about that sort of thing. And I gotta tell you, like, MMA doesn't have enough of that. MMA's got plenty of people hurling petty, stupid, mindless, trolling insults at each other there's plenty of that and there's a huge market for that oh man if you want to do that i mean the the sky is the limit if that's the kind of thing that gets you through your day truly i mean that there's a massive market for that but ultimately it's just nothing ultimately what you're doing with with when when you see all this stuff is just it's either some kind of culture war bullshit or some kind of petty vendetta for no good reason or it's just the exercise of antagonism without there really being anything rooted in it other than the antagonism itself. 
there's just nothing to it ultimately it's not it's not it, it doesn't represent anything about the real world other than some kind of transactional gain or you know petty differences that are being upheld for no good reason that's it that's that's the only thing. you can do it it's extremely lucrative you can do it but there's it's absolutely mindless and pointless as an activity dean is being harsh so it sounds like that but what he's really coming from is a place of absolute accountability and honesty from coach, essentially, to athlete. And he's unforgiving. So if you don't agree with what he said, by all means, speak your mind. But I will tell you, as a general rule, I have... I like Dean Thomas a lot. I respect Dean Thomas enormously. And his candor, the kind of candor he is offering... The fight game needs a lot more of that. I, we could use a lot less of the other stuff and more of, of that kind of a thing. Have you seen Usman's last message about suspension? I have not. Oh, 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 you mean um, Usman Nurmagomedov. I've not seen what he said. I saw what was, what was reported. Got to tell you, I think it's a l much ado about nothing. I can't declare that to you affirmatively 100%, but um, yeah. L let me tell you something. If the, if the California Commission came to you and you had, um, you if what they report is true, that you took something. He, here's what didn't happen. He didn't take something and go, I've never heard of that. I don't know how that got there. What he did was he was like, oh, yeah, it's because I'm taking this and I have a prescription for it. And he just didn't disclose it because I guess he didn't realize, again, his story anyway, is that he his claim is that he didn't realize that was uh, it had anti-doping implications, so he didn't need to. But the thing that, to me, is the big tell on that story is that the commission in California gave him, what, six months? Dude, they're only doing that as, like, an administrative procedure. If they're giving you a punishment for six months, uh, and I, I'll double-check this, but if they're, giving you a, if they're giving you a punishment for six months, it cannot be that serious, by definition. They would not do that. Dude, Andy Foster, it's not fucking possible for them to do that. If they're giving you a six months, it's administrative. So everyone being like, oh, my God, he took X, Y, and Z. Calm down. Patrick McGurr, thank you. I appreciate it. Is Andrade the most underrated female fighter in MMA history? She's a former champ, fought for titles at 115 and 125, and had nice wins at 135. Is she the most underrated? No. Because, dude, like the losses, she had three stoppage losses in a row. Like that will, um, that should affect your stock. If you get stopped three times in a row, your stock should be affected by that. I saw someone talking about Errol Spence after he lost to Bud Crawford and asking whether he still belonged in the top ten. I forget who it was. And they were saying, like, no, you don't get, you cannot lose a fight as thoroughly as Errol Spence did and then claim you still believe that you should be ranked in the top 10 pound for pound. Of course, he would still be ranked very highly at 147, although we'll see what happens with the weight class that's in. I'm sympathetic to that argument. Like, I still think Errol Spence is very, very good, but yeah, you can't lose a fight like that and be like, I'm a pound for pound, you know, top guy. It's like, pound for pound top guys don't lose like that. And I know Bud's number one, but, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a strong argument to me. Um, so in this particular case, like, yeah, like she should have. But here's the thing. We even spotlighted on MK last week. We spotlighted why we, why I, I, why I believe you should have had trepidation about that in 2023. She had a great win over a very strong competitor in Lauren Murphy. It wasn't like that was 2021. 
That was this year. That was this year. So you knew she still had it in her. It was a question of whether she could put it all together. So most underrated, I don't know. I, obviously, some folks were looking past her this time. But, you know, when you're taking losses the way she was taking them, whatever the broader circumstances might be, that should affect your stock. You should take a hit for that. Mike Poetan, Johnny asks, have the best chance of anyone of becoming a three-division champion. Yeah, we'll talk about this on MK tomorrow. I, I don't really think it's all that relevant a question, but I think he could do it if he got favorable matchmaking. Not against Aspinall, but... Actually, you know what? No, I'm not so sure. I, I go back and forth on this. I'm not so sure anymore. If this really is the era of Aspinall, then I don't think so. I'll, I'll put it that way. What should UFC do with the winner between Jan and Rakic? Man, Rakic has been off forever. Let me pull up his re resume. And I like Rakic too, man. He has, to me, a lot of athletic gifts that are very, very interesting. But uh, here. So what is he? 31, still very young, Rakic. His last fight was the Lohovich one where he got injured uh, in 2022. So he hasn't fought at all this year. He's got one coming up in January, obviously, against Jan. It's the rematch. Before that, he had wins over Anthony Smith and Tiago Santos, and uh, he had lost to Uzdemir back in 2019. So it's been a long time, man. It's been a long time. I, I would say that, that if he beats Jan, even though Jan is highly ranked, he would need to beat somebody else. He would need to beat, I'm not sure who, but by itself, I wouldn't get a title shot off that. He would need to fight maybe the loser of Walker and Ankaliath or something. A couple of things to get back to really where he needs to be. Uh, is it possible that Alex already has a Hall of Fame career in seven fights? You know, you would think maybe not, but honestly, he might. He honestly might. He genuinely, honestly might. I hadn't given it any thought. He obviously just entered the Glory Hall of Fame. He he, he might. Yeah, he might. I'd have to, again, you ask me these on the fly. I don't want to give you like a yes when I haven't really given it much thought. But it would be it would be hard to keep him out. Sure, that's it's a, it's an interesting question. Interesting question. Uh, hey, since I know you donks won't have okay bet scoring figured out, let me make it easy for you. A win equals two points. A draw equals one point. Okay, I'll bring it up with them. I'll see what they say. Do you think Dana will have to leave the UFC before they co-promote? No, not necessarily. Also, how fast did BC go limp when Dern lost? So, so, so right before, like when they were like, you know, and uh, when when Buffer was introducing them, he texted me. BC texted me, and he goes, "Dern's about to do some ground and pound on and on uh, Andrat." That's what he wrote. I didn't even respond because you know I'm not. I, I don't like doing predictions. I thought that people were overlooking Andrade, but hey, maybe Dern had turned a corner. And we, I was, I was wrong about that. Turns out I wasn't, but you know, like that that could always be a real thing. And so I just watched the fight, and then afterwards I was like, "Oof!" And dude, my mentions fucking exploded with people being like, "Bring up how he was saying how Dern should have been like minus four fifty and blah blah blah." Oh yeah, we're gonna have that conversation on the air tomorrow. That's gonna be fun. That's gonna be fun. Uh, checking in from Copenhagen. How have you been? Good. Also, I need to update the OK Bet records now. Just catching up. Well, hello. Okay, oh boy, Copenhagen, out there in Denmark. I've never, I've never been to Denmark. I've heard wonderful things about Denmark. Are you planning on seeing the Marvels? <laughs> um, you know what? I actually tried to go the other day, and uh, 
was it Friday? I guess I, don't, I forget what day it was. Um, but they, I just don't, none of the times worked. I, I wasn't planning on seeing it. Then the reviews were good, but then I saw that it bombed like a motherfucker at the box office. So at this point, I'll probably just wait till it comes out on Disney Plus. Um, I have not seen it. And someone says, thanks for your service. Well, thanks, dude. I appreciate it. In Exile, 88. Uh, all right. Don't know what that means, but hope you're okay. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for watching. All right. So let's set the table one more time. MK, tomorrow, yeah? MK, tomorrow. Also, please don't forget, we're back on our regular schedule on Thursday this week. Thursday at 3 p.m. We'll get right back on it. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you for all the donations. I appreciate your patronage. We will get this podcast up here soon. I'm going to change up the thumbnail. So love you guys. Appreciate you. Until next time, uh, stay frosty and you're the best. I'll see you guys on tomorrow on MK and then Thursday on the live chat. We out. Bye. <laughs>